You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. So today I'd like to preach on, again, a little two-part mini-series within a sermon series uh, titled, When God Moves Into the Neighborhood. All right? When God moves into the neighborhood. And last week, we focused on the aspect of access to God. And today, I want to focus upon the presence of God. The presence of God. You often hear people say, when they are visited upon by someone famous or revered, or one of the revered people of the world, that they have been in the presence of greatness. The very presence of someone great shifts the environment and atmosphere of the room. And and beyond that, it can shift the whole environment of a city or a country. Also, the coming presence of someone great always requires a high level of preparation. How does one prepare for the presence of greatness? And that got my preacherly imagination considering this week the reality of green rooms. I don't know if you know what that is. Green rooms are the rooms set apart and made holy for the purpose of being the dwelling place of powerful celebrities or speakers, musicians, bands before they get on stage, right? Green rooms are protected spaces, holy spaces for the celebrity and their entourage for the big event that separates them from the commoners like you and I. And the more powerful the celebrity, the more one must prepare for the presence of greatness. And that led me this week to the presence of the queen herself, Miss Beyonce. When Miss Beyonce prepares to dwell in a green room and make her presence known, she sends a list of required accommodations that are to be in place before she arrives. She requests one large table for catering dressed with white tablecloths. She requests the dressing room be 78 degrees, no more, no less. Four brand new white towels in the bathroom, two for her face, two for her body. Hot food, juicy baked chicken, legs, wings, and breasts only. Please season with fresh garlic, seasoned salt, black pepper, and cayenne pepper, heavily seasoned. (laughs) Steamed garlic broccoli, lightly seasoned green beans, lightly seasoned steamed spinach. Beyonce can only have Pepsi products in her presence due to contractual arrangement. No Coke products are allowed, they are unclean in her presence. So she demands one case of Aquafina water, half cold, half room temperature, and a hot tea set up. And finally, rose-scented candles. See, you got to prepare for the presence of greatness to be in your midst, and you have to recognize when that presence is among you. That's what we're talking about in this part of the book of Exodus. We've talked about how the God's great presence has, we talked about this last week, it's been manifested twice in the book of Exodus, at least. Exodus 3, when uh, God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush, and he said, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. And then in Exodus 19, when the pillar of fire came down on Mount Sinai, and the people weren't even allowed to touch the presence of God. See, for as great as Beyonce might be, there is one greater, right? And so we're talking about that great God then saying to the people of Israel who are afraid of this, the presence, I want to live in your neighborhood, right? We talked about how this verb in Hebrew, shakan, means to make a dwelling, right? Make a dwelling place and tabernacle, mishkan, which is the, d- the dwelling place. And last week we talked about access into God's most holy place. And we talked about how the tabernacle is a royal tent and only one person has access to the most holy place and that's the high 
priests and, and him only once per year, right? That there is limited access. And what we traced last week is that it sets up a pattern for most holy place, for blood, for high priests to understand where the story is leading to a better high priest, a better high, uh, covenant, and a better access into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. We talked about how in the scriptures, these words and themes are like hyperlinked. They're like little Wikipedia pages. And when you click on them, you can see much more detail about this, how the story unfolds. Well, today, I want to talk about presence and temple and God's dwelling among us. I want to focus in on God's presence, his tabernacling presence among us, and what that means for us as the church. And last week, I gave you three Ps, and this week, I'm going to give you two because, you know, symmetry is all right and all, but I, just, I wasn't going to be forced into it. There is the pattern of the presence and the purpose of the presence. The pattern of the presence and the purpose of the presence. The scripture says, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. What becomes clear is that Moses is not just told how to make the tabernacle. He is shown visually a pattern by God. And that's revealed later in the scripture to be it's, he has shown the dwelling place of God in heaven, and God tells him to make a, a kind of miniature of it in the tabernacle. He's shown a blueprint. He's shown how to make the structures, and that was the detailed verses we read uh, in our scripture reading, the, the curtains that have to be coupled to one another, that they may, they may be a single whole, right? He, he's shown how to make the inner room the most holy place, the outer room the holy place, and the courtyard and the tabernacle. And everything in the tabernacle, as we said last week, is to point the people of Israel toward this reality that someone lives here among us in this tent. There is furniture. There is a lamp that is always lit. There's always bread on the table. Someone is present, and not only someone, a royal someone, because there's all this gold and there's purple and blue uh, cloth and curtains. In fact, what we see, though, in the tabernacle is the meeting of sacred space and human space, right? And in fact, every culture has churches and temples and shrines and shopping malls and football stadiums and yoga studios, places of devotion and offering that uh, hint at the fact that we as creatures of God know that there is more to life than can be seen in the material sense. We long for our space to meet sacred space, don't we? We long to transcend and to get a taste of communion with with the divine. And so what we begin to notice about all this architecture of the tabernacle that I will not get into in great detail is that it has certain symbols that were deeply meaningful to the people of Israel because it called their minds back to the original place where human space and sacred space intertwined. What was that, Bible nerds? Well, it was the Garden of Eden, right? There in the garden, it was said that the Lord walked in the cool of the day with the man and the woman that he had made. But after they sinned and felt shame, it was said that when the Lord came near, what? They hid themselves, themselves from the presence of the Lord. And that word presence in Hebrew literally means before the face of somebody. So when the man and woman fall, they're driven from the presence of the Lord, separated from his presence to the east of Eden, as John Steinbeck once said. And they're separated by two cherubim with flaming swords. They're driven from the tree of life. They're cursed to return to the ground from which they came. And so what you find in the tabernacle is that that same Lord who was with Adam and Eve wants to dwell and manifest the presence of his glory among the people again. And his presence is accompanied by what? Well, there's Eden imagery embedded in the tabernacle. There's blue and, and uh, purple cloth of color. There's golden uh, ornate things. There is cherubim on the curtain. 
that separate the holy place from the most holy place. There is a lampstand in the holy place, and how does it look? It is to be designed like a blossoming almond tree with its buds and its flowers and its stems all carved out of gold. And then there's a bread with the cultivated grain on it, with bread that they are to eat. So the Lord doesn't just tell Israel to make a plain room with a wooden chair and a kerosene lamp or a fire pit. Because God is not boring and God is not disinterested in beauty. Right? Because the Lord is out to tell an aesthetic and real story to the people that you and I are inheritors of. We see that God's pattern of presence is this. It is a royal garden and temple for communion. Keep that in your mind. A royal garden and temple for communion. We're going to trace the wiki page uh, through that. And so that pattern accompanies Israel for the rest of their journeys into the promised land. And right now we're preaching through the first five books of the Bible. But eventually, years down the road, we'll make it to Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And what you find out is that the Ark of the Lord and the Tabernacle kind of take on a life of their own. They have a lot of different episodes. But when finally Israel settles in the promised land and is settled by King David, King David rises up and he says, Oh Lord, I live in a house of wood, but you live in a tent. I want to build you a proper house, right? And the Lord says to David, I've never complained about living in a tent, first of all. And second of all, you ain't going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house forever and ever in a kingdom. And the Lord also tells David, uh, and also, uh, you're not going to build a house for me because you are a man of war and your hands are too bloody. All right? Your hands have, have shed too much blood. So David's hands are too bloody. And so God has his son, the, the son of Bathsheba, Solomon, to build the temple. And wouldn't you know it, it's a huge and golden and grand permanent temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And it featured the same basic layout of the tabernacle, but it's much bigger and grander and permanent. It has the ark and the cherubim carved in gold on these golden walls, and it has lampstands. And then he adds other garden-like imagery, like pomegranates hanging from the ceiling made of gold. But the people of God sin again, and the temple is ultimately destroyed as the people are sent off into exile. And the ark is never to be seen again. Some people think they have it somewhere. But, uh, you know, Indiana Jones tried to find it too. And though eventually another temple is built by exiles who return after the exile, and that there's a physical temple standing at the time of Jesus built by King Herod, right? I I know I'm getting detailed here. It's, It's for a purpose. The prophets of the Old Testament, though, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they start to see something. And what they start to see is a a vision of a bigger temple. And in fact, it's a huge temple. Ezekiel sees a temple that is the size of the whole city of Jerusalem, basically, if you were to actually literally measure it out. And they see an expansion, literally, of the Garden of Eden and the temple to cover the whole entire earth. That the knowledge of God will cover the whole entire earth. And Isaiah, more importantly, sees that it's not just Israel that will come to this temple. It's not just the people of Israel, the people of that covenant, but that God will bring in outsiders, right? And and, in Isaiah 56, he says, the outsiders I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, Sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Right? So when you follow that trajectory along, and finally we get to the New Testament, and you get to the first page of the Gospel of John, you see that language of in the beginning again, just like Genesis. And John starts talking about one who is both divine and is God and was with God and through whom all things were made, but also one who becomes flesh. 
He's talking about one where human space and sacred space overlap perfectly. And, and it's not coincidental that when he says the word of God becomes flesh, he literally says the word of God makes his dwelling, or it could be translated tabernacled among us. And when Jesus walks into the temple in the next chapter of the Gospel of John, it is a temple he finds to be corrupt. Corrupt by the material trade and profit of the whole scheme of offerings and everything. And he says, you know, you've made into this into a house of trade, but my God said that his temple should be made into a house of prayer for all the nations, right? And he starts teaching and turning over tables and leading quite a violent protest. And the people say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And he answered them this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> And John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So in the story of scripture, does, Jesus does not just become the once for all sacrifice and the bloodshed in the holy place. Jesus does not just become the great high priest ever to, living above to intercede for you. Jesus becomes the cornerstone and the foundation of the new temple of the Lord the same Lord of the Exodus. And when the Lord sends his spirit to descend down in Acts 2 and fire to fill and tabernacle among the people and to empower them. And so finally, people of God, you get to the letters of the New Testament and you read statements like this we heard in our assurance today. So you then are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, what? Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place or tabernacle of God by the Spirit. You see where this is going? You see how this is doing this? This is what the scripture does over and over and over again. This is what God lays down for us. So the pattern of presence is this, is that the Lord of all wants to remove the barriers that exist between the people and between himself. The Lord wants to redeem a people from hiding and shame before the face of him, right? And bring them back into his presence and before his face. And the Lord has made a way for us to be in the presence of greatness. He has sent the requirements before him for how the space should be prepared, but he has fulfilled the requirements himself. He has set up the green room and welcomed us into it. So that's the pattern of God's presence in the scriptures. Y'all see that? And that leads us to what is the purpose of God's presence? We talked about how God is the set-apart one. God is the holy one. And for the people to be in his midst, he says, the people need to be made holy like him. And this is the refrain of the scripture in Leviticus and 1 Peter, that you may be holy as I am holy. Dr. Kenny Gibbs likes to quote that scripture at me a lot, right? Be holy as I am holy, right? What does holy mean? It means to be set apart, to be made clean. And this is what we celebrate every week in the liturgy of the church is that the Lord has set apart a people. He's consecrated them. He's washed them. He's filled them with his spirit. And we are the temple and the body of Jesus, the Holy One. And this whole, this, so we are a holy space, basically, the church. And this concept of holy space is hard for us to grasp today. It is. But Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he illustrates this by using the metaphor of the bathroom. Okay? I don't like to talk about the bathroom, but I'm going to do it for you. And he asked the question, would you eat dinner in the bathroom? Mm. Would you eat your dinner in the bathroom, he says. Oh, no, you wouldn't, huh? Why not? Because that would be gross, people of God. That would be gross. 
Because the bathroom, like the green room, is a space set apart for a purpose. The bathroom contains a certain set of activities that the kitchen does not and never shall the two meet. Though, have you thought about it, that in the bathroom you put the toothbrush in your mouth. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of gross. I can't even join these spaces together in any way. I don't like brushing my teeth at the kitchen sink. It feels gross and unclean to me to brush my teeth in the presence of where I wash my food, right? So he uses that as an illustration of we naturally know what we mean when we say holy and set apart. And so the church is a holy and set apart space for the things of God and for God's presence, right? The scriptures teach this. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, but you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And when you take that and expand it corporately, what the scriptures are saying is that we are a holy temple filled with the Holy Spirit to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, right? And we can't confuse the fact that just because we gather together, just because we have a temple, doesn't mean that we are actually living holy lives, right? And so that's the work of progressive sanctification, right? To make us holy. That's why the scriptures are so often teaching us, the church, about the corrupting influence of money, of materialism, of the improper use of our bodies for sexual pleasure, of the love of power and domination and the love of gossiping and division and violence. All these things it holds together because these are the unclean things. These are the things that the Lord does not want in his presence. And so our life to be, together, we are joining in the presence of God in us the things we, we, ought, we ought not to join the things, unclean things, to the people of God, right? So that's what he teaches us. The tabernacle was placed at the dead center of the Israelite camp. That's how it was constructed. The tribes were to be encamped all around the presence of the Lord, and his presence was supposed to be always at the center, right? And that's why the Israelites are commanded to always keep the lamp lit, in that last portion of the scripture, because dare they think that God is not actually, that God is asleep. So when they wake up in the middle of the night and have to go do something outside their tent, they're supposed to see the tabernacle lit up to say that God is always at the center and that God is always present. And if we are to grow in holy lives, it is growing in that awareness right there, that God is always at the center, that Jesus Christ dwells in the center of our being and that he is always present with us. There's an old prayer that comes to my mind often when I talk about holiness, which is a vague concept. Or it says this, this old prayer. It said, Oh Lord, may I engage in nothing in my life upon which I could not ask for thy blessing. That's an old English prayer. Let me translate it for you. And everything I think and everything I do and every way I live, whether in my own or in community, if I cannot ask God's blessing on what I'm about to think and say and do, then it's not holy right? To grow in holiness is to grow in that pattern of living, to say, whatever I am doing, God, bless this. That is what the presence of God is for, is to sanctify and make us holy until one day we are glorified permanently, right? But the presence is all, also for the purpose, not just of holiness, but also for wholeness, the tabernacle was to be joined in its many parts into one single whole. And so we too, the church, though we are many members, are being joined into one single whole, into a temple of the Lord. That's why on multiple occasions the scriptures talk about the fact that we have been brought together different though we are. 
ethnically, culturally, economically, outlook, political. Though we are different, we have been brought together and are being joined together. And literally in the scripture today that we heard, it says, in him you are being built together, built together into a dwelling place for God. That growth towards unity and wholeness, it takes time. And it takes patience. It takes supernatural help to actually be unified to a people that are different than you. I used to work construction for one long year in my life. When I was in between seminary and in between my first call in ministry, I was wandering in my version of the wilderness, wondering what I was doing. And I got put on this construction team that was honestly a really bad construction team. And the, it was so poorly managed. But I, I go to this work site in the middle of the Missouri countryside in the middle of July. It is so hot. And I'm building uh, landscape architecture, retaining walls, fountains, paved stone walkways, staircases, right? And I'm hauling these blocks across the whole property in wheelbarrows to go place them on the walls where they belong. And the worksite was so poorly mismanaged that I was doing the same thing in December in the snow. I was hauling stone. You're not supposed to be doing that in the snow, that kind of work. But what I learned is when you get around to making a retaining wall, you have to get all these different kind of stones and you have to fit them together. And some stones you have to put in the special stone saw and you got to chop off an edge here and, and you got to place it just right on the stone. And then you got to place this uh, adhesive, this special construction glue between the stones that they may be built and joined together. And so what the Lord teaches us through this metaphor of temple is that all of us are stones, but we are not quite shaped how we need to be to be fitted upon the wall. And what God is teaching us is that sometimes we got to have a little rough section smoothed out here and a little smooth section chiseled out to be a little rougher. Sometimes we have to get sawed off to fit to the stone next to us. And, and what he also teaches us is that we cannot point to the other stone and say, you don't belong here. The, the job of God and the Holy Spirit is to form us and build us together into this wall. And it's also understanding then that because we are joined together, our actions are not just our actions individually. Our actions affect the community. Our tragedies affect the community to be supported. When those in our body have tragedies, the other parts of the wall are supposed to come in and support the structure right? It means that we have to really confess and repent to one another and learn not to say, well, that's just who I am, but learn rather to say, well, the Lord's still working on me, right? Because the stones are being joined together and God's Holy Spirit that tabernacles among the temple is to bring this wholeness. And finally, I want to close with this, is that the presence of God brings power, the presence of God brings power. The tabernacle was a structure. It was a tent. It was a vessel that the Lord descended upon in his power. The tabernacle didn't have any power on its own. Its sacred objects were not effective or sacred because they were beautiful or magical. They were not sacred and powerful. They were made sacred and powerful by God's indwelling sacred power. When God comes down upon the tabernacle, as we'll read at the end of the book of Exodus, the same can be said of us as the temple of God. We are stones in whom there is no power, especially. We are jars of clay. We are vessels upon whom the power of God has tabernacled and descended. The salvation project of God is this, people, that God uses the weak, the low, 
the humble and the despised things to shame the false strengths, the false strength and pride of our world so that anyone who could boast could only boast in the power of Jesus. Paul says things like this, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If our life is to be engrafted into the temple and into the way of Jesus, this is the path. It is the path towards ever finding the end of yourself and the beginning of him towards ever finding the end of your capabilities and your intellect and your strength and your power and relying upon his power to nurture and restore and bless and infuse you with divine power. Because this is what Jesus, who was the temple of God, did. He completely exhausted himself in utter weakness that the spirit of God might restore him in utter divine power at the resurrection. So right now in life, if you are feeling the burden of weakness... If you are feeling and struggling with an addiction, if you are struggling with crippling anxiety, if you are struggling with a relationship that you don't know how to love the other person in, if you are struggling with despising the life you lead, if you're struggling with a medical diagnosis, if you're struggling with always living on the brink and the grind of poverty and never seeing an end to that in sight, if you're struggling with a death, if you're struggling with the state of our society, the weight of systemic problems, and you're feeling your weakness, let me say this, your weakness is square in line with the way of Jesus. It is not opposed to the way of Jesus, it is the way of Jesus. That we have company with him during your dark days of weakness and affliction, because resurrection will come. The gift of the power will be given. It doesn't discount the darkness and the pain and the weakness now. It just means it's not the end of the story. Recently, I've been studying Uh, this book called Power's Weakness and the Tabernacling of God by this Lutheran theologian named Marva Dawn, who's a theological hero of mine. And she talks about uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, a verse you've probably heard. It's after the section where Paul talks about how he was given this vision, right? But the Lord gave him something in his life that was a constant source of weakness and suffering that he calls a thorn in his flesh. And he talks about how he cried out to God for this weakness to be removed. He cried out to God for strength, for capability, for inner giftedness. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And it's often translated, for my power is made perfect in weakness, which is fine. But, the, but that word there can also be translated like this. For my grace is sufficient for you, for your power is brought to its end in weakness. And then in the next verse, Paul says this, All the more gladly then will I boast in, the, in my weakness that the power of Christ, not my own power, that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. And wouldn't you know it, people of God, the verb right there, may dwell upon me, is the same verb that describes the Son of God coming into the flesh. It's the same verb back in Exodus that describes the pillar of fire coming to dwell on the mountain and in the tabernacle. That the power of Christ may tabernacle upon me, a weak vessel. It teaches us that in our weakness, we find the end of our power. And it is then that Christ graciously tabernacles his power upon us. So beloved, be weak. And boast in your weakness. Don't listen to the advice of the world which says, lead with your power. Lead with your beauty and strength and intellect and gifts. Instead, lead with and boast in what you don't know. 
lead with and boast in what you can't do, that you may glorify the God who descends on you by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ and tabernacles upon you. God's presence makes, God's presence makes us holy. It makes us whole and it makes us powerful. And that's all because he's building us into a dwelling place and into a temple. Until that day, as we close out this hyperlink envisioned in the book of Revelation, when finally and fully the tabernacle of heaven meets the temple of earth and God's dwelling place is joined with us and creation is glorified. And then it will be said in Revelation 21, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with humanity. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So this section of the scripture is to lead us to know that God has made his dwelling among us. And one day he will make his dwelling all over the earth and through us. Where there will be no need of a temple anymore. But we, he will be our temple. This is the word of God. We give him thanks. Let's, let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.